Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor John Flood, who is Professor of Law and Society at Griffith University in Brisbane, Australia. He is also Adjunct Professor of Law at Queensland University of Technology and Research Associate at the University College London Centre for Blockchain Technologies. He researches on the global profession, globalization of law, and the role of technology in law. Welcome, John. Hello. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. So I want to start with one of your uh, recent papers, uh, Professions and Expertise, How Machine Learning and Blockchain Are Redesigning the Landscape of Professional Knowledge and Organization, uh, in which you say machine learning has entered uh, the world of the professions with different impacts. Automation will have huge impacts on the nature of work and society. Engineering, architecture, and medicine are early and enthusiastic adopters. Other professions, especially law, are late, you say, and in some cases, reluctant adopters. Uh, could you talk about, you know, sort of the landscape um, of, uh, of law profession and where they are today in terms of adopting these types of technologies? Certainly. Um, law is interesting because it's a very old profession. It's often considered one of the uh, you know, original traditional professions along with medicine and the church at the time. Um, and in a sense, law has used different kinds of technology, you might say. I mean, it, it always, it, all of it's based around writing um, and then the printing press and, and so on. Yeah. But um, it's always been based on a craft um, a skill which the individual person has that yeah. enables them to do whatever is required, if you like. Mm. And um, so there's never been a lot of room for any kind of uh, automation. Um, right. Certainly there has been space for using um, uh, uh, people who are not fully qualified as lawyers, who are, uh, are sort of paralegals, people like that, who will do a lot of um, repetitive work, you know, document uh, checking and things like that and so on. But what we're getting to now is the situation where automation 
uh, through machine learning and various other kinds of artificial intelligence is able to start constructing documents, for example, contracts, um, check dollar, uh, uh, documents for um, particular clauses and things like that, make sure they're up to date. And uh, this, in a sense, is replacing now the kind of work that lawyers will do. So I think in some ways, more and more of of the profession of law is going to be subject to automation. But the distinction I would make, because I think it's quite important here, is that uh, a lot of what lawyers do is actually quite repetitive. Um, you know, they're, 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 they're drafting contracts all the time or, or, or they're reviewing documents of some sort or another or, or they're going through a particular kind of nego- negotiation. And, and so, you know, a lot of it is the same, but they build up their expertise through doing these same kinds of work over and over again. Right. And um, what we're now finding is that instead of having young lawyers coming in, and doing what we might call the grunt work of, of checking documents and uh, uh, going through discovery ac- applications where you go through the other side's boxes of evidence to try and decide which are, are the appropriate documents you want, the emails, the invoices, all of this sort of stuff. Yeah. That is the kind of work which is lending itself to automation. Yeah. And and so that is taking away a lot of the work which was used for training purposes with young lawyers, and is just you know, and it's doing it much quicker, uh, more quickly. I mean, uh, uh, um, more efficiently in many ways, and, and probably less expensive. Much much less expensive. A lot of this work is being outsourced uh, yeah. to you know legal process outsourcers say in India or. or Philippines or South Africa, places like that. So, yeah, that's that's right. Uh, and so, in some ways, the the group of lawyers who do the work which requires the skill and the judgment uh, is reducing in some ways. It's it, that that, yeah. that pool is getting smaller. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. You know, the the distinction that you make uh, between automation. And uh, in my jargon, let's let's call it decision making, mm. right? Uh, uh, which is, you know, I, I've done a lot of work in the on the business side of this. So, for example, yeah. uh, in the '90s, in a large pharmaceutical company, uh, so if you think about, you know, R and D decision, mm. you know, people might think it is really complex. You know, the selection of R and D programs, the design of them, portfolio management, risk management, all those decisions. Yeah. Uh, generally, in companies, we say, well, senior managers with a lot of experience and intuition make those decisions really well, right? Mm-hmm. And so that statement uh, would automatically imply that machines can really do much there. But, but what we found in the mid-90s is that a systematic analysis of data make those decisions a uh, lot better, actually, mm. uh, compared to humans. Um, humans almost always uh, seem to make decisions. These are generally binary decisions. So if you go back and look at it, you know, the alternative experiment has not been run. So we have no data to say it was a good decision or bad, typically. Mm. Um, so humans have a 50% chance of making good decisions. Uh, so do, you know, just uh, throwing a coin or, you know, letting a monkey make those decisions. So. Yeah. Uh, we found that even complex decision-making that humans hold 
um, you know, uh, close to their, you know, kind of domain uh, are not necessarily so. Uh, we have machines uh, that could do that much better than humans. I don't know if there's an analog of that in, in law. I, I, I think there may be, actually. I, I mean, um, uh, two or three years ago, the Royal Society in England decided to do arrange a, a working party on machine learning. And one of the things they did was to put together a, a, a round table on machine learning and the professions. And I was asked yeah. to talk about that. And I, and I talked about the history of professions in technology. And, and I think one of the peculiar things that uh, came out in relation to law is that law has always been uh, sort of on its own. If you think about medicine, for example, medicine's always had the teaching hospital. It's a, an institution that sort of straddles the academic world and the practice world and, and yeah. brings those people together. Um, and as a result, uh, incorporates lots of scientific uh, uh, work and uh, engineering work as well, and computing work and things like that. Um, and that's been the, you know, the, the first teaching hospital came into existence in, in the French Revolution in 1789. So there's a long history of that. If you look at law, there was nothing equivalent to that whatsoever. And okay. there is, in fact, actually a, a, a fairly big gap between what the academy does and what the practitioners in law do. So that... Um, uh, uh, as a result, as I said before, law has come to this uh, 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 quite late. But what we are um, finding, I think, is that uh, uh, certainly the, the, the management consultants are finding is that because of the nature of a lot of what goes on in a legal office, um, a, 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 a remarkable amount of it can be automated. So what we are getting now is companies which are setting themselves up to do this automated work. Um, so we have companies which do nothing but contract uh, uh, construction and formation. Um, a sort of company that, that you know, a typical lawyer would, would say to a client, um, do, do you want a contract? And the client says, yes, I want a contract this for this. And, and the lawyer will go away and draft the contract and come back with it. Mm -hmm. And then if the client comes back again and says, I need another contract, you go through the same process. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, which is good for the lawyer, but not necessarily good for the client. What we're finding <laughs> now is there are companies, and I can think of a few of them, that will, in fact, go into the company and say, Look, show us all your contracts. Let's see the entire uh, uh, corpus of contracts that you've got there. And they will analyze them uh, and go through them and say, all right, we can create a new contract in an automated way fairly easily. It may need some modification according to special circumstances but on the whole it's fairly standard and and they can do that uh, um, in a very systematic way meaning the contracts are, are reviewed they're checked if they're going to uh, expire then you might need a new one and and they will just the, the system will cope with that if you like um, yeah mm, and yeah, yeah so so yeah go ahead sorry no, no, please. Can you, can you that? No, no. So I was just, just going to say, yeah, so the, the distinction you make, you know, uh, in terms of education, sort of a systematic graduate level education mm. that we have, as you say here, is law is, is you know, in one sense, a soft profession. Yeah. Uh, you say in hard professions like medicine, architecture, or engineering, the state mm -hmm. has a strong concern in ensuring that expertise is applied in the public interest. 
um, whereas law a uh, little bit different uh, from uh, from that. And economics, in some sense, uh, sort of in the same same way. But uh, we have now made uh, economics a really hard science. Yeah. Right? Um, lot of mathematics, you know, mm. lot of uh, analytics there. Um, whether they are actually useful from a policy making perspective is left to debate. But uh, at least there has been an attempt to make this make economics a very hard profession. Mm. Um, so, so I don't know, um, mm-hmm. you know, what the transformation has been in 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 law. I I I doubt very much that will happen in law. Um, yeah. Although. Things are beginning to happen. Uh, um, I, I, I mean, let me just. I, yeah. I, one example I learned in that workshop that I mentioned the Royal Society held um, was somebody from the engineering profession talking about mm-hmm. the difference in skills between people who are above forty and below forty. And he said, mm-hmm. if he he was above forty, if he was asked to design an aeroplane, he would take out pen and paper or pencil and paper and, and do it. <laughs> And he said, I don't know anyone under 40 couldn't do that. They wouldn't know how to do that. They would immediately go right. onto a computer program and, and design it there. So you can see there that the incorporation of technology into the academy through to the actual, you know, occupation and firms and things is, is already uh, uh, standard and, and there. In law, it isn't. Law, as you say, is still very much a soft skill, although yeah. I will argue that there is a difference between the way law is viewed in different parts of the world. So in the United States, um, law is, I think, more tilted towards the sciences. Um, So law and economics is one of the big things in the US. So you get a lot of people uh, working in the area of law and economics who who might go on to do antitrust work, you know, competition work and things like that, which requires a lot of economics and mathematics and statistics and so on. In, say, uh, uh, Europe, Australia, and so on, law is more allied towards the humanities um, and the classics even. So it doesn't have that kind of scientific underpinning in that way. So anything that's going to change in, in these parts, if you like, is going to be something that's going to be imported from outside um, and it's going to have a very dramatic impact uh, uh, when when it does. Um, and, and, and I think that's yet to happen. Um, yes. I don't think there's been a sort of Cambrian explosion, if you like, uh, um, <laughs> in, in law. There will be one, I'm sure. But, but law has an advantage over engineering, economics, and all the other uh, areas you, you might want. And that's to do with the nature of the rule of law and access to justice. Since yes. the law as a, a, a way of ordering society is absolutely crucial to everything else, then um, law and lawyers will say, well, look, you know, we have a special status here. It's different. Admittedly, if you're an engineer, we certainly want to make sure our bridges stay up. We don't want them to fall down. Uh, um, But, you know, we can design different kinds of bridges. We can design different kinds of legal rules, but there are sort of fundamental rules. Uh, uh, If you want to, you know, if you're an engineering company and you want to build a bridge in a different country, you're going to have to do it on the basis of the legal rules, which will be devised by the lawyers according to the countries they're in and so on. So in in, in that respect, yeah. you know, I might put law in a special category, if you like. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask, yeah. let me push on that mm. a bit, John. So 
the the conference that you mentioned, uh, you know, the engineers under forty and engineers above forty. Mm. Um, so, so one could argue, uh, you know, from an engineering perspective, one could argue uh, it, it it is actually dangerous uh, uh, to not to use machines to build an aircraft uh, because. Uh, you know, all the technologies that we have today actually helps us uh, make that aircraft a lot safer. Uh, granted, you know, if you sit down with a blank sheet of paper and pencil, you might get the principles mm. right. Uh, but but the technology has advanced so much that um, you really have to use uh, technology mm. to do it. So, you know, in some sense, engineering is pushed back <laughs> in yeah. a way that, you know, I, I argue this myself, you know, when, um, when when I went to engineering school, I had a physics book and my daughter um, went to school. She used the same physics book 25 <laughs> years later. Uh, and I argue that that is sort of backward because uh, there is really no need for an engineer to really learn Newtonian physics anymore because mm. it is prescriptive. It's deterministic. We can make machines learn it very quickly. And so why spend a lot of time yeah. on it, right? So, so then, you know, if you think about the, the law of, uh, field, mm. uh, I wonder if there's a, you know, uh, a, a similar argument that is to mm. say, granted, a very good lawyer has a lot of intuition, a lot of experience to craft something, mm. um, a contract or, or a discourse, uh, but then, uh, maybe the machines can actually do it even better. Uh, we haven't really tested that hypothesis yet, right? We almost have this idea that humans are always dominant yeah. over machines, but that may not be true uh, as technology mm. advances. So what do you think about that in the in the lower Well, data? it's a very important point, actually, because the uh, American Bar Association has been modifying its ethical rules recently to say that um, lawyers have a duty and obligation to keep up to date with technology. So we already know that, you know, technology is now uh, uh, an, an important part. And I have to say, when, when I say the word technology, I, I mean this at all kinds of levels, from what you can do with Microsoft Word, for example, and its various plugins, yeah. all the way up to uh, um, artificial intelligence, IBM Watson, uh, or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, so that uh, uh, if if lawyers become uh, uh, users of technology, whether they're small firms or big firms or what have you, uh, uh, under the ABA rules now, they they actually have an obligation to make sure that they are up to date. They can't just say, "Well, we didn't know what we were doing." Um, so I think in that respect, you know, there, there is a there is a move. the The other move that is taking place is the, actually the push from from the clients. Now, this you have to look at in two ways. Um, one is with corporate clients, the corporations who use lawyers, who have to use lawyers, if you like, um, want their work done for less money. They want it done cheaper. They want it done more efficiently. Um, they don't want uh, 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 the best piece of work every time. They want something that works and they want it done efficiently. They want it done routinely uh, and, and so on. So. Um, it was interesting, I think a few years ago, the general counsel of Cisco um, actually made a speech uh, saying that he expected his uh, lawyers, the law firms who worked for the company, to be reducing their fees year on year 
Now, that's the opposite of what lawyers normally do, which is to raise them year on year. So, um, so that, that's, that's one push, which is uh, um, a very profound push now coming from the clients themselves who are, are using, you know, they're beginning to use their procurement departments in, in the companies and things like that to help purchase legal services. The other aspect, which is just as important in this, is if you look at the role of lawyers and individuals. So if you or I want access to, to um, legal services, you know, it's expensive. Lawyers are not cheap. They charge a lot of money. Uh, uh, we don't know how to judge the quality of their work and so on, uh, uh, because law is a credence good. We just don't know that. Um, so, uh, uh, and this is where technology can begin to step in and provide right. services which are um, you know, efficient and, and often quite cheap uh, uh, and work very well for the individual. So in that respect, technology can be seen to be improving access to justice for a lot of people, if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to come back to this, John. I think this is a very important point. So when the output has a lot of uncertainty, um, uncertainty may be not the, not the right term, but it's not deterministic. Mm it shows variability. Uh, and so the determination of quality is not as easy as in a hard mm. area like engineering or medicine, right? Uh, business, economics, uh, uh, legal, all sort of uh, fall mm. into that category. And um, the application of technology uh, sort of has a different, uh, different meaning mm. there. Uh, but I want to touch on one other thing that you say in the paper, and that is you mentioned this before, and that's about training, training the, the mm. next generation. So you say here, regulating bodies or professions are involved in the collection and reproduction of knowledge intended to be used by the entire body mm. of professionals. And so there is an expectation here that, you know, senior professionals uh, pro is providing their wisdom, their knowledge and mm. intuition uh, to, to train the, the next generation. Now, in a, in a technology-driven uh, regime, uh, this has some implications, right? Our expert is going to be a computer potentially <laughs> in the future. <laughs> and so, so how does that work uh, from a, from a training and knowledge dissemination? Uh, well, I, I think this is um, <laughs> this is a crucial issue, and it's one which the profession hasn't really um, got to grips with yet. I think because uh, if you think of technology in terms of, um, you know, predictive analytics, uh, uh, document review and, uh, and things like this, um, most law schools are, are not preparing students for this. There may be a, a, a course or two on some aspect of technology, but it's not something which lawyers themselves are learning. So I think what is going to happen is we're going to find a blending of skills occurring. So um, law firms will be, in a sense, having to bring in a range of technologists who perhaps have, you know, skills that uh, straddle both sides of the lines. So there will be lawyers like this too, I think. I think we're going to find um, an avant-garde, uh, a vanguard who um, will begin to develop skills that allow them to talk to both sides of the line, the tech people and the, the law people, if you like. And there will be tech people who will acquire and develop these skills as well. Uh, but that's, that's still some way down the line. I don't think we're anywhere near there yet. And 
part of the reason for that, I think, is that you know, law is still a very highly regulated profession. Uh, and, and the regulators themselves are in the same situation. They are unsure about what is going to happen. And, and they also feel they have an obligation to not only ensure that, you know, customers, clients, and consumers are protected, but in some ways the profession is protected too, if you like. So, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fine balancing act there, I think. It's a fine balancing act, and it's a, it's a changing, um, changing thing. So, going back to you know, uh, you say here, and as an individual attains the status of expert, some form of encapsulation of knowledge and analysis occurs, enabling professional experts to arrive at diagnoses, decisions, and conclusions mm. rapidly. Uh, and you make some distinctions around the type of learning that happens mm. uh, in human beings. Um, you know, the, the distinction between learning mm. to drive and becoming a yeah. grandmaster. Um, yes, 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 because I, I, I think that's again. important. Uh, um, uh, uh, so um, the, 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 the principle behind this is that, um, you know, individuals can acquire a lot of knowledge in, in various areas. So, you know, as I say, learning how to drive a car, you learn how to change gear, you learn what the appropriate speeds and braking for different road conditions and things like that and so on. If you want to take that further uh, and become a Formula One driver or something like that, then you have to undergo a very different kind of training. And that kind of training becomes uh, a, a lot more collective rather than individual because you start to you're, you're going to be in a group that is going to be doing a particular kind of uh, uh, driving if you like everybody in the group has to understand what each other is doing in that group you can't have people going around a racetrack at you know 200 miles an hour or thinking individually if you like they have to have a collective consciousness uh, um, about how to drive in that situation that's nothing like how um, you and I might drive. I'm not saying we're bad drivers. I'm just saying it's very, very different. Um, and so, and I think professional work is is not uh, um, that different from this in a way. So once you you can go through law school and you and you can do your law degree and you can learn your law, you can learn your engineering. This this applies to all professions really. But in order to become a professional, in order to become somebody who can uh, um, operate and function within that particular group, if you like, you then have to yourself have to develop this collective consciousness. And, and one way of, of thinking about it is that we, we can call it a kind of tacit knowledge. There's the sort of knowledge you learn on the job from people, which is not always articulated in a precise, uh, uh formulaic kind of way, but it's something you pick up from the way somebody does something you just recognize ah that's mm. that's how they've done that you know it might not be it's probably not written down anywhere or anything like that but you, you know oh that's different from you know x is doing that differently from the way that y is doing it and i think x is doing it better and, and you and you just and you can absorb that that's what i mean by this kind of tacit knowledge and that comes about from the professional context and and so how the professional context develops becomes absolutely crucial to how you introduce uh, um, new ways of doing things, new modalities, new skills, uh, uh, new outlooks, if you like. And I think this is where we're on the cusp of, of this beginning to develop. I mean, we, we know it's got to be done, quite how it's going to be done, 
um, is yet to be determined. So, so, so let me make a statement, John, and I want mm. I want your reaction to it. So, uh, in, in hard sciences uh, areas like mm. engineering and medicine, expertise is about a, uh, a consistent application mm. of rules. Um, whereas in law and economics and business in general, let's say, expertise is not about the ability to apply rules, but to deal with mm. exceptions. Um, and, and if that is true, it has a lot of implications, right? It has implications as to how we might divide work uh, between human and, and machine in the future. And the skills that universities need to impart on, uh, on, on new graduates are also quite different. So I always argued in the business uh, engineering context, that universities haven't changed mm. at all. They, you know, like I mentioned before, they're using the same mm. physics yeah. books, yeah. they're using the same books uh, for 30, 40 years without asking the question, are those skills relevant anymore? Uh, or more importantly, what skills mm. are really relevant for a human being mm. in the future, right? Uh, do you agree with that, that uh, expertise is more about uh, dealing with exceptions rather than applying? That's a nice way of putting it, actually. Um, uh, uh, I'm, I, you know, I, I can see the logic behind what you're, you're, you're saying. Uh, I think what distinguishes... Um, a good professional, whether it's a good engineer, or a good architect, or a good lawyer, or a good doctor, is is somebody who has a certain. This may sound strange, but a certain imagination, creativity uh, uh, about them, a certain kind of flair that allows them to function on the knowledge that they they've got and developed over the years and the experience that they've gathered from, you know, repeating what they've been doing over the years and so on. And, and it allows them to see around things in ways which they perhaps wouldn't have done. I can give you an example, if you like, uh, in law. So um, yeah. in, in Germany and some other countries, for example, there's a particular way of bundling together mortgage securities. I, I won't go into detail about this, but, but there's a statute that enables you to do it, uh, and, and then you can sell these securities and, and get money. Now, in certain countries like the UK, the US, and so on, there's no statute. So in a sense, to, to put this kind of um, uh, uh, deal together uh, it, it couldn't be done, if you like. So... Um, a, a bank came to one of the large English law firms and said, look, we want to, we want to replicate this in, in the UK. We want to set up a market for this. We know the, the, the statutes aren't there. What can you do? And what was quite interesting was that the law firm then sort of went back to first principles. The lawyers who were looking at this went back to first principles. They looked at some very basic areas of law about the law of trusts uh, 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 and, and contract and what have you. And, and from that, they constructed an instrument that looked very much like the one in Germany, but without the statute. And they tested it mm. and it worked. Um, and it turned out to be incredibly successful, uh, so much so that the German government started and the German legal profession started to complain because they said, you can only do this by statute. And they said, no, 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 we, we found a way of doing it through, you know, first principles using law. Uh, um, and there it is. And, and they were rather shocked by it. But that was a, a particular example, if you like, of, of what you were talking about. They, they, they took the exceptions 
They went back to first principles and said, you know, all right, how would we get, you know, if this is where we've got to get to. And this is, we're right at the beginning. What are the steps we need to take? And, and you know, and that's what a good lawyer will do, if you like. Right, right. Yeah, so that, that's a very important uh, point. So you, you say in your paper, John, as uh, Dreyfus and Dreyfus note, the, the, the proficient performer immersed in the world of skillful activity sees what needs to be done, but decides mm. how to do it. Um, so as we move into AI and other technologies, I think this is an important point. It is, you know, um, right from um, the advent of agriculture, uh, we have been using humans, mm. as you mentioned before, in a lot of repeated mm. activities, which they're not really designed for. Uh, humans, I would, I would contend, don't enjoy doing things over and over again. And if you have a lot of humans doing that, yeah, mm. it's because they have to do it uh, for a living, right? And so, so we should be moving toward uh, a, a world where anything that is repeated mm. are delegated to the machine and automation is mm. sort of at the bottom of that. Um, and, uh, and it's not pure automation. You can mm -hmm. have intelligent automation. You can have, you know, reinforcement mm -hmm. learning, those types of things. So you have some aspects of artificial intelligence yeah. getting into the, into that too. And, and deploy humans, um, you know, in which they are really good at in some case, some sense. So, you know, uh, we've been studying the mm -hmm. brain for ages we are nowhere close, nowhere yeah. close to understand mm. how the heck it does it. Um, you know, it's not mm. deep learning. You know, we, we see a face uh, 30 years ago. I see that person mm. again. You could see, you could, you could have a feeling that mm. you've seen that before. And, and what the brain has done, actually, not only uh, see that pattern, but also age that mm. pattern intuitively for 30 years and say, yes, that face I have seen before. Um, and so there are some superpowers yeah. the brain has. We have been applying them all in all the mm, places mm. so far. So, so, so the technology might allow I us think to do so. it. I think so. Look, I think technology will allow us to do incredibly complex things without having to think about them too much. Uh, I mean, if you look at the way a port functions, for example, um, any major port, you yeah. know, these days they've got millions of containers and ships going through them all the time and so on. There's a lot of paper going through there, you know, those charter parties, bills of lading, guarantees and so on. There's a lot of legal work that's being done. Uh, uh, it, and it's all quite standard stuff, you know. I mean, everybody knows what needs to be done and so on. Now, some people are beginning to think, well, the best way to handle uh, um, a port, if you like, and for everybody to know, is to put everything that's going on in the port into a blockchain so that you can see the whole supply chain. You can see when something comes in, you can determine when the goods are, are being offloaded, when they're being shipped. You can start making the payments uh, um, as a result of the uh, operation of the smart contracts, if you like. And the whole thing could be just run quite seamlessly in some ways without that much human intervention, really. You just need an oversight and perhaps some bits of coordination and so on. But at the moment, it's still uh, uh, um, a lot of humans are involved in that. Uh, shipping people, law people, all sorts of things, which is, is um, you know, I think insane. That's a waste of, of, of resources. We know that there are people who have all kinds of problems that, that require that creative flair, if you like. Um, and so why 
waste money on the routine stuff when you could uh, 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 devote the skills to the the real need, if you like, uh, um, in that way. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to mm-hmm. touch on that a little bit, uh, John. Yeah. So blockchain, for example, as you mentioned. So, so one reason, uh, especially in the professions mm. like law and business, uh, humans have an advantage. Yeah. Is this dimension of trust, um, and you know, uh, at least in our generation, we don't really mm. trust mm. machines mm. Yeah. <laughs> at, at any level, right? So, so having that uh, human. Uh, human touch is still extremely important for us. Now, technologies like blockchain, for example, actually allows uh, that trust to be mm. potentially decoupled, right? Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. No, I think means? I think you're right. Look, I think I mean one of the reasons we make contracts uh, is because we don't trust each other. So you know, we we devise these documents with all the conditions in them, and you know what. If something goes wrong, this is what will happen and things like that and so on. One of the interesting things is that, you know, people rarely rely on contracts. You know, you, you draw up a contract uh, and the two business people, if you like, they stick them in the drawer and never look at them again. Um, unless something, you know, really, really <laughs> fundamental goes wrong. But, you know, assuming it doesn't, um, they never look at that again. So you say, well, what was the value of the contract? What did it actually do? Um, if you look at uh, uh, some of the um, Asian countries, say like Taiwan or parts of China, you have a, a system called Guanxi, which is where people develop um, effective uh, relationships by knowing each other over a period of time around business that allows them to develop trust, if, if, if you like. So, um, you know, there are different ways of, of, of handling trust, but we, we seem to spend a lot of time on trying to minimize something, um, you know, which we don't really do a lot of, if you like. So I think one of the advantages of of blockchain is that it just it removes a lot of this from from the equation. If there are certain things you know that can happen, or um, as a result of if this then that uh, um, systems, let it happen. Uh, um, and, and you know, as long as you've got oversight and you can see what's going on, then right. you know you don't need to be too concerned about it. It will just do what it needs to do in that way. Um, and uh, uh, so, you know, again, that's still very much in the early stages, but we are seeing um, situations where supply chains, um, sh- uh, uh, shipping goods from one country to another um, can actually be done under smart contracts through a blockchain uh, technology, if you like. And um, th- that that is now happening. And it's also good for, you know, dealing with things like, um, Counterfeiting, you know, if you're um, producing, you know, particular high quality goods like mobile phones or particular pharmaceutical products and so on, um, you know, it's one way of guaranteeing the quality of the product is you can uh, 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 say, well, look, you can examine the whole supply chain. All the data is there. uh, And, you know, here's your QR code, look at it and you get the whole thing going all the way back. Um, There are... Again, there are issues around that. If you're dealing with the digital, um, it's much easier. Once you yeah. start dealing with physical products, then you have a 
uh, a question of well, how do you get that first initial um, digitization of the physical, if you like, that goes on. So um, there are some people I know here in Australia who are, run a company called Beef Ledger, which is trying to um, export beef, Australian beef, to China using a blockchain um, supply chain, which will uh, um, guarantee the security and the quality of the goods um, to the Chinese consumer, um, because there have been problems mm -hmm. with this before. Um, but you know, I, I, I will tell you now, do, doing something like that um, does require that if the people you are dealing with, you're going to set this up with, um, you have to have a trusting relationship with yeah. them before you can set up a technology that will do away with the trust, if you like. So, you know, we, we, we're still in that. That's really early days, I think. And it's another a lot of time away to go. With right, that. right. Yeah, but, but the technology works. It has, mm. I think it has a lot of potential. One could argue uh, contracts exist because there's yeah. a probability of non-performance. If you have a technology that drives that probability of non-performance to zero, then mm. you can actually mm -hmm. get rid of all contracts. Yeah, yeah. At the limit, right? Well, so, it, so it, it is, it is. And, and that goes back to that earlier point yeah. I made that, you know, most most contracts are, are fairly standard, you know, uh, uh, routine things. They're, they're there to, in a sense, record a series of transactions and payments that have gone on between people without them having to do much, if you like. You know, once, once you, you're, you're doing the business, the contract just kind of records that in perpetuity. Um, so the smart contract just yeah. takes that into a different area and 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 actually does the whole implementation and execution um without people having to right. be involved in that too much unless something goes wrong but if it if it all goes right then bang it it's done it you don't need to you don't need to think about it again hmm. <laughs> yeah. right right yeah i want to jump into a for another uh, forthcoming paper uh, globalization law and lawyers mm. in a time of crisis in the yeah. to the global lawyer. Um, and so in which you say, Nikolai Kondratiev, mm. uh, a Russian economist in the 1930s, believed the world's economy operated yeah. in long 60-year cycles uh, that mm. he, uh, he called K-waves. Uh, and you say, according to his analysis, we are in the fifth such cycle, which yeah. comes from 1980 to 2030. Uh, it's, uh, you say it's 2019 forthcoming, John. You might have. Oh, I think so. I think so. Because I, I tell you, after what's happening this year, I, I thought, my goodness, you know, I couldn't. Um, uh, uh, I thought, my God, you know, I, I was just um, I've just been astonished because, uh, 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 um, you know, uh, uh, Kondratiev divides these waves up into into what he calls four seasons: spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Uh, and, and we're in the winter of this fifth cycle, if you like. This is when all the bad stuff happens, and he's there's war, uh, famine, disease, uh, and I'm thinking. Well, wait a minute, that sounds, yes, yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. Um, uh, uh, but one of the interesting things about Kondratiev was that, you know, he, he because he was uh, 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 one of Stalin's economists, uh, and Stalin uh, uh, did execute him, yeah. by the way. You know, he, he got fed up with 1938. That was the end of uh, Nikolai, unfortunately. Um, but uh, uh, he, he said, instead of, um, you know, the, the, if you like, the ownership of the means of production, 
uh, uh, being the determinant for the changeover from system to system. He said it's it's technology, and and you know that the technology will drive you out of the downswing of the the last cycle into the upswing of the new cycle. And, and, and the way that works is that when you're in this kind of winter period, uh, um, because of the kind of economic uh, uh, gloom that pervades, if you like, people tend to hold back in terms of investment, in terms of technological innovation and what have you. And so a lot of energy, resources, money, capital, if you like, builds up to a certain point when people say, all right, we've got to go for it. This is, this is it. And, and that's when, if you like, the technology mm. comes to the fore and really drives it forward. So from that perspective, what he's saying mm. is that, you know, come around about 2030, um, you know, uh, if, if things are going slowly now regarding technology, they're going to speed up dramatically in this period. Mm. And, and that's when it will, you know, really all sort of take, take off. And, and people have looked back over uh, uh, preceding cycles uh, and they've, you know, it works, if you like. It's not just a, a fantasy theory. There are also the people yeah. who do um, uh, uh, cleodynamics in history. These are the quantitative historians. And they've done a similar kind of analysis of historical mm. periods and say, yeah, you know, there are these kind of cyclical uh, uh, processes that take place when revolutions occur and, and you know, big upset occurs and, and what have you. And, and you know, one of their... Um, uh, perspective, which I find quite interesting, is that they say one of the reasons for revolution to come about is because elites begin mm. to compete with each other, and 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 you know, and I look at say Trump <laughs> in in America, and I look at you know the Democrats, and I I, I I would look at say Modi in India, I look at Xi in China, and I see different groups of elites who are you know mm. engaged in a really profound struggle for the future of their countries, if you like, uh, yeah. uh, which again is leading to this kind yeah. of um, potential uh, 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 eruption of activity and, and new ways of doing things. Yeah, it, it makes a lot, mm -hmm. uh, lot of intuitive sense, John. So, you know, one way to think about this is also, uh, there are a lot of excesses. So when, you know, when things mm. go good, um, there are excesses mm. in the system. Um, people mm. start to believe they are invincible. Uh, they they change their assumptions about risk mm. uh, because they don't see any. Uh, mm. And we see this in financial markets too, right? So mm. these cycles in real real markets yeah. that uh, Nikolai is talking about, um, you can see you know the same yeah. thing happening in the financial markets more clearly. Uh, but but what he's saying is that it happens in real markets. And you ask in this paper um, in 2019 for in many ways, globalization mm. is a crystallization of the central petal mm. economic forces of the last 30 years. Mm. Is globalization doomed as populist yeah. Democrats uh, preach nationalism and retrench? And I think we have the, we have probably the answer to that mm. um, in addition mm. to that. Mm. But you see, I think uh, um, you know, one of the, points I was trying to make in, 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 in this paper um, was that um, global law, if you like, is, is, is the uh, a kind of synthesis of chaos. How do we bring some kind of order to, to chaos? Now, once you start seeing the undermining uh, 
of of ins global institutions. You know, you see, um, you know, Trump has withdrawn from the WHO. He's he's uh, uh, criticized NATO. Um, he, he he won't have anything to do with the International Criminal Court. And so we, we've got this kind of real life tension now between a, 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 an international legal order that's been built up since the Second World War, uh, both e well, economic and legal order, I would say, global order. Um, and, and so uh, uh, we can't just eradicate globalization. I mean, even, even with COVID, we can't eradicate globalization. We've got to, you know, handle COVID, the COVID pandemic on a global basis. Otherwise, we're, we're lost. If it just retreats to a national uh, mm. uh, approach, it's not going to work. Um, and we'll be defeated in that way. So it's got to be global. Yeah. My, my, one of my questions in, in that paper was, well, who are the people who are going to be doing this uh, uh, kind of, you know, bringing the the order to chaos, mm. if you like. And that, so I made an argument that it's got to be the global lawyer, if you like. Uh, uh, and this is a person who not only mm. understands mm. their own national legal system, but is also able to communicate with lawyers and, and officials uh, um, from all around the world, if you like, you know, uh, 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 to be able to develop a kind of common... Mm. Uh, a language, a common discourse that enables them to to put start pulling these things together, um, and it's not just a simple matter of saying, well, mathematically it works this way or not. You know, it it it, it requires a kind of pulling together of people, but it requires that sort of common understanding which uh, uh, comes out of what I was saying about this idea of tacit knowledge. You know, once you've got this kind of professional consciousness, mm. uh, um, you know how other people are going to behave and how they will interact with you. And then that enables you to be able to start to predict how you can do things and so on. And so on that basis, I think you know, we can operate a kind of global order yeah, yeah. At, a, at a sort of uh, 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 below the institution institutional level, if you like, kind of private ordering as opposed to the public ordering. And that was what will pull us through. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, at the limit, John, uh, I don't know if you think this way, at the limit, one could ask, what is the need for countries? What is the need for legal system differentials? Uh, we set this up uh, with the premise mm. that it's easier to manage in small chunks. Um, one could also argue with the advent of technology that you don't need to uh, uh, segment this the way that we have done, uh, which might make these types mm. of issues, uh, you know, yeah. Look, I, 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 I see right. where you're coming from, and I'm going to say yes and no. Um, yes, I think there's the, the a whole <laughs> range of of questions that can be handled by the technology, uh, uh, the ones we've got, AI, blockchain, et cetera, and so on. I don't, I don't see any issues there. But there are a lot of decisions that need to be made, uh, uh, both in terms of putting things together, mm -hmm. resolving disputes that can only mm -hmm. function at a human level. Because it's not, these are not decisions that are simple binary decisions, if you like. It's not yes or no. It's it's often a lot more nuanced and complex uh, about that. I mean, one of the resources in the world, uh, key resources in the world at the moment, which is being fought over, if you like, is water. Um, water is probably one of the most valuable resources anywhere and it's you know you often find that rivers and things like that sort of flow between countries they form borders <laughs> and and you've 
but you know people if you look at the nile for yes. example it starts up in in sudan and then flows all the way down to the mediterranean so it goes through two countries or three countries ethiopia uh, uh and then into egypt and so on well well who has the right to put a dam at a particular place and things like that all of that has to be coordinated you see uh, and that can only be done at a human level Right. That that's what requires the skills in negotiation, judgment, interpretation, understanding, if you like, of the other people. No machine can do that, I guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so before we conclude, I, I want to touch on one other thing. Uh, so in the paper you say, as technology and culture intersect more and more, yeah. The ethical conundrums will intensify. Uh, we'll, mm. we'll be raising questions mm. about the rights and obligations of robots and go beyond Asimov's three laws of robotics into issues of rights of robots mm. and AI, AI algorithms themselves. Um, so this is, this is an area that we haven't really started to even, mm. even uh, really form some notions around uh, rights of robots mm. and rights of AI. Mm. Uh, as AI gets more sophisticated. Uh, yes, yes, I do. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, this is one of the issues. We already know some of the problems, you know, with algorithms and, and, and you know, can we, can we, are they transparent? Can we see what's going on? And so there are ethical issues around the construction and implementation of algorithms and things like that. But I, I, I think looking into the future, um, you know, we are going to rely on things like robots and, and, and various kinds of machines so much more so that if you look at a country, say like Japan, which has a, 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 an aging population such that uh, um, it doesn't have sufficient younger people to look after the old people who are going to need uh, uh, looking after. So machines are going to be a part of that. And that means people will start forming real relationships with machines. Uh, and, and so that's when I would say, okay, so uh, let's think about um, how we might sort of view uh, uh, the potential rights of a machine. You know, we give we give rights to humans. Yes, we know that. We give rights to animals now. Um, we've also given rights to rivers and forests in right. some countries as well. You know, and so machines, I think, are are, are right. Right. Um, a next logical step. You know, do we do we treat them with respect? Uh, uh, um, let me give you one. Uh, a, a very classic example, um, yeah. the production of um, robots for sex, if you like, is a major industry at the moment. Um, some manufacturers say they want to program them mm. so that people can act out rape fantasies. Well, do we want that? I mean, you know, should we be, uh, uh, first of all, you know, uh, 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 we shouldn't be having people behave in this particular kind of way but even and, and certainly if you do it against another human being you will be punished for it uh, um, and you could say well a machine is a piece of property you shouldn't be you shouldn't be doing that but uh, um, I'm, I'm getting to think you know that maybe uh, uh, um, machines should be treated with dignity so that we are treat ourselves with dignity there's a kind of reflexive situation here what we do to machines we do to each other and they may again do to us, depending on how they evolve and and move forward in that way. It's a very contentious is issue. A lot of people would reject that right out of hand. I, yes. I agree. I, I think we've got to start thinking about it and start planning for it because I think we're going to, at some point, again, I don't know when, but at some point we will be having to deal with that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's a it's a very important point, John. So if I understand you correctly, you know that the rights to animals, mm-hmm. the rights to inanimate or inanimate uh, things like rivers, uh, the reason those exist is because yeah. of its effects on humans, and we can see very a very clear link uh, in the future. We would see a very clear mm-hmm. link between mm-hmm. AI uh, algorithms and robots and the effects on humans. So this is not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not fantasy in the sense that, yeah, robots should have rights, yeah. but rather it's a more conceptual question. If robots did not have rights, it's going to have a negative effect. On I, I, I agree with that. that. I think that's absolutely that true. I mean, just to right. you know, highlight that, if you like, there's a firm called Boston Dynamics that produces uh, uh, robots, you know, and they produce these videos of these, how these robots are resistant to being pushed over and things like that. And it was quite interesting because a lot of people say, oh, you can't treat them in this way. This is awful. Uh, uh, and so on. Well, all right, you know, I mean, that that's anthropomorphizing to, to the extreme extent. But, you know, I, I think... It, you know, on the basis of what you're saying, yeah. you know, are, are, are how we are going to hold human beings accountable to each other in, a, in an increasingly complex world. Machines have to become part of that. We can't just have them on sitting on the edge as though they're not part of who we are and what we are and how we do things. Right, right. So in conclusion, John, if you sort of look forward five years uh, at the intersection of law and technology, uh, where do you think we will see sort of the biggest impact? I think you'll so see it at two ends, really. I think on the, uh, um, you know, for the individual, yeah. uh, uh, for the individual, you're going to see a lot of them just interacting uh, um, with artificial intelligence, you know. So there are lots of questions about, you know, what are my rights for this? How do I deal with a tenancy agreement? How do I complain against uh, 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 a producer, a company or something like that? All of that's going to be automated. It, it, it's fairly straightforward to do, and, and it will only need um, a certain minimal amount of human insight if, uh, and intervention, if you like. At the other end, at the, if you like, the yeah. corporate end, I think we're going yeah. to see more and more technology coming in um, because, as I say, those basic functions that are are um, being carried out by junior people or or paralegals or things like that are the ones which are going to be increasingly automated, increasingly uh, uh, um, re- we will replace the humans and just let the machines do that because um, there's no point in wasting human resources on that. Um, whether that means we need fewer or more lawyers, um, that's an open question. Um, I think it will mean that we need different kinds of lawyers. Um, we will need lawyers who are more technologically aware, much more sophisticated. They don't need to be programmers or coders or anything like that, but they need to have a, 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 a quite a, a, um, a strong understanding uh, and grasp of what's going on in technology in that way, if you like. So, um, yeah, we're, we're going to definitely see a lot more. Yeah, so I think you mentioned this. So from a structural perspective in a law firm, do you see law firms progressing toward 
you know, group of equity partners yeah. um, surrounded by machines, so to speak. Uh, or well, I think uh, um, I, I don't know. It was in that paper or another one. I, I sort of, I, I sort of forecast law firms as being a, um, yeah. a, a distributed, decentralized, autonomous organizations running on a blockchain um, with with the various people uh, uh, intercepting us and when they. Uh, um, will no? I think the law firm is still a very strong and powerful uh, uh, institution that's not going to disappear straight away. But certainly, the numbers of partners who control things will shrink. They'll, that will get smaller as a proportion. And yes, they will be surrounded by more machines, uh, and they will be surrounded by people who are servicing those machines. Right. You're yeah, right. excellent. Yeah, thanks for doing this on a weekend, John. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. It's been great uh, fun uh, and, and very interesting. And, and you know, I, 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 I have enjoyed this too. So 